So I'm here with Neil Carter, a new buddy, uh, you know, yep. a gym buddy and also a, a soccer player. So we're going to talk about that here in a minute. And also your day job is a professional in the events planning and hospitality space. And so you're going to yep. teach me everything I don't know about planning conferences, which is a big thing in my industry. So before we get into it, though, Neil Carter, what's going on, man? How are you? Doing very well, man. Thank you for having me on. I truly appreciate it. Yeah. Um, this is a, it's a great honor to be on. Thank you. Oh, I don't know about it being an honor, but I'll <laughs> take it from you, uh, man. So. You are in recent transplant to Texas, so I yes. want to welcome you to Texas. Uh, how long ago did you, did you get here? Because I know you grew up in, in Florida. Yep, got here from South Florida in August, born and raised in Miami, Florida. Uh, go Canes. Go Canes. Um, so, uh, yeah, born and raised in Miami, Florida, and, um, yeah, came, came here in August. Absolutely love it here. Love the weather. Yes, it's hot here, but... Yeah, compare to me humidity. the Florida heat to the Texas heat, because I feel like Texas is pretty humid, but I realize Florida's on a completely different level, yeah, right? Half the humidity of Florida. Okay. And so because of that, because it's it's half the humidity, it's not, in my opinion, it's not nearly as bad because when I go out to walk the dog, I'm not sweating immediately. In Miami, I step outside at 8.30 p.m. for two minutes, and, and I needed to go take like another drenched. shower. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's wild. That happens every <laughs> once in a while in Texas where you're like, why did I even just take a shower? Yeah. Like, that was a waste of a shower. Yep. But, you know, that's uh, that's the nature of living in a fairly somewhat tropical climate with a lot of yeah. humidity and heat. It's it, To me, it beats the frigid cold of, like, the northeast uh, most of the year. I, I you, People yep. can have that. They, I'm not interested in that at yeah. all. But so, Neil, we're, I know the bulk of the conversation today will be kind of filling in the gaps of what sure. it's like to plan an event, especially hotel-style conferences. Those are sure. really big in the insurance industry, which I operate. And that's where I think a lot of people that follow my show will ultimately be interested in. Is like, what's the economics of it? What is it like to plan that? Absolutely. What are logistics like? All those things. Because I've always wondered that myself. Well, why don't we start more of your backstory? So we got a little bit about where you're from in Florida. Kind of give me uh, the 101 of Neil Carter, grow up, family life, interest as a kid, and then let, let's lead into soccer after that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, born and raised in Miami, Florida. Grew up there to two Jamaican parents, amazing parents. I had a phenomenal upbringing. Awesome. Uh, grew up in a loving household. I, God couldn't have put me in a better situation. Uh, our family... Uh, was it was great you know we didn't have much but definitely had love and definitely had everything we needed Very and then cool. as things started to thrive for my parents from as my parents started to thrive professionally uh, they were both highly educated coming over from jamaica you know we then ended up moving to the western area which is just a little north of uh, miami about 40 minutes north of miami and it's a um, upper middle class suburb and so lived there Grew up playing. My dad got me into soccer. Yeah, I was going to say, it had to be dad. Dad introduced yeah, you to soccer. Then did yeah. he play himself? He played, yeah. You know, Jamaican boys, that, yeah, that's what they yeah, play. And yeah. so he introduced me to soccer, and I was hooked. He showed me a, a clip of Paul Ince, ah, and which yeah. was, ironically enough, Paul Ince played for Manchester United, and he loved Paul Ince. My dad was a diehard Arsenal fan. So he puts me on to Paul Ince. I immediately become a Man U fan. <laughs> and then he's like, oh, what did I do? You know, like, Created goodness. a, like, in-house yeah. rivalry, Exactly. Right? <laughs> So when Manchester United was playing Arsenal, was Dad still an Arsenal fan? Or oh, 100%. Okay, okay. He just really liked Paul Ince, yeah. and that was it. But then because of that, he put me on to Manchester United. Awesome. And, um, you yeah. got to be a fan kind of similar to me in the heyday of Manchester United yep. with Beckham and Cantona. Oh, and yeah. Paul Scholes yep. and Ryan Giggs. I mean, the list is a mile long. Yeah. Nicky uh, Butt, Ole yeah. Gunnar Solskjaer, yeah, all Alex those guys. Ferguson, obviously. Yep. You know, that, what, a, what a freaking era yep. uh, of, of success that they had. You know, I have some buddies that are still Man U fans today, and it's kind like of like me, yeah. it's been this uh, – 
Yeah, it's been a disappointing run here recently. We were but spoiled growing up. I, dude, it's it's we insane spoiled, how good. Yeah. I mean, they're like the Yankees or, you know, recent years, maybe the, the Patriots in the NFL, yep. like this dynasty that they created, yep. which nowadays in soccer is incredibly difficult to do because of the money that's poured oh, into yeah. European leagues. So you grew up watching Paul Ince. Did you... Did you want to idolize? He was a forward, right? So yep. did you want to? When did you want to be like Paul Ince? Did you shape I, your game like uh, like his? So he was my gateway into soccer, but then I quickly found other guys that I okay. idolized much more. Um, Paul Gascoigne, um, Rude Gullit with yes. uh, you know Netherlands, yep. um, just guys like that, and uh, probably my favorite player from a technical span the te- standpoint of all time is Ronaldinho Gaucho. Yeah, yeah. My the Ronaldinho. The, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the, a, the ball skill. It's amazing. Like yeah. I think some people when they see like what Ronaldinho looks like now, he's a little, little chubby now because uh, he's kind of he's yeah. up there in age, and you can't imagine he also was incredibly fast. Like yeah. it wasn't just his ball skill, but he could do it at speed. Yeah. And you look at him and you go, what? Like that guy was that that quick and good? Yeah. At one point when yeah. he was a little bit more fit, <laughs> yeah. he was. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's easily up there in the conversation for one of the best players of, of all time. No yeah. Doubt. My favorite player of all time up until probably about five or six years ago was um Pele you yeah. know the late great Pele you know leading lead, all-time leading goal scorer in world history which people don't really speak of much they don't understand like they'll speak of uh you know uh, Cristiano Ronaldo's goals and Messi's goals and say oh you know they this is the most in a career but actually it's not if you go back and look Pele had over 2,000 goals in yeah. his career. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. and is there is there some skepticism about, like, some of these, like, the early days and the counting of the goals? Because, I mean, to get to 2,000 goals yep. is an extraordinary pace, right? That's yeah. 100 goals a year for 20 years, yeah. right? That's a lot of goals. So <laughs> I don't know what level he's playing at at certain times or how good the scorekeeping was, but I think – Regardless, yeah, he's easily the, the highest scoring player of all time. And uh, God rest his soul, I know he mm-hmm. recently passed away. So when did you discover, though, when you were that you were good? I'm curious, was oh, there a, a moment like in maybe your high school or junior high where you were kind of a standout player? And we're leading into the fact that you play professional soccer, so we're going to touch on that. But when did you know that, like, hey, I'm pretty good at this? Um, so funny thing, goodness, in middle school, I was actually terrible. Okay. For sixth grade, I'll never forget it. I was actually, I wasn't that great. And, um, you know, kids tease and, you know, that, that are in the same sport when you're not as good. Yeah. And I was determined to be better. I didn't know how much better I would be, but I was determined to be better. So I would get to the field before, an mm. hour before everyone when we were going to play pickup games. Mm. I would stay an hour after. My brother used to get mad because we would ride to the field together and then ride home together, and he would have to wait for, me, waiting there for, for me to finish juggling yeah. or finish taking shots. He's like, Neil, come on, man. What's going on? Exactly. Yeah. And then slowly I just started to get better to the point to where by, you know, seventh, eighth grade, it was rather quick from that point, seventh, eighth grade, to where I, I was excelling. Okay. And I, I felt like I was progressing at a pace to where— Well, do you think it was directly attributable to the amount of work that you put in? Probably, I mean, one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure your body was developing over time, speed yeah. and uh, power and all those things. But the work ethic was, yeah. seems to be the thing that like connected you or catapulted you, if if you will. I was all work. Okay. I I I will go out on a limb and say I had no God given talent for soccer. <laughs> no, I, I truly believe that. Okay. I just. I didn't get things as naturally as the players that we're talking about. You yep. know, you see Ronaldinho Gaucho with the ball. I don't know how he's doing that. I didn't, you know, I was one or two cuts, few step overs, pass the ball or shoot, and yeah. that, that's really it. And yeah. that took years of just development, you know. 
Well, that, I mean, I think honestly, that's, uh, I just posted a clip this morning from Kareem Cade, uh, the episode I just released, and he talks about, you know, you can go to different places, you can, hey, maybe I'm changing jobs, that was the context he was using this analogy in, mm -hmm. but he's like, if you don't work on you, yep. you're the same you anywhere else unless you start working mm -hmm. on you, and I saw that same exact thing in my soccer career, not to, we'll move on from soccer here yeah, in a no, second, but... When I was a sophomore, I made varsity. I think I've told this story before, but I made varsity and then I didn't play. Mm -hmm. And so my coach sat me down probably five or six games in the seasons like, Spencer, I need you on JV. And I'm like, JV? Like I go back down to JV. It was like yeah. this, I was broken You're as right, a sophomore. Right. I thought I was just on the cusp of doing good things. And then so I remember leaving there being kind of upset and emotional, angry as a teenager would be yeah. and driving home and decided, you know what? Like, I don't want that to be where it stops. Right. And so same thing as you i was a little later of a bloomer after practice an extra hour go home and do another yeah. hour of practice juggling agility anything that i knew that was a deficiency in my game i worked on yeah next season captain of the varsity team the next season i was like uh what it was a midfield mvp and i played played college and as a captain yeah. all that there was like this point in time where I had one or two ways I could go, which was kind of give up and just mm -hmm. kind of casually go through the motions or double down on effort. I chose the double down on effort and the trajectory went up from there. Yep. I saw players, and I'm sure you experienced this, and this happens in every aspect of our life, naturally gifted early on, don't put in the work. Yep. Here you are slowly but surely, now you're excelling beyond them and they stop or they quit yep. or something else happens. So I'm sure you experienced that yourself. So, yeah. so many times. Yeah. Um, you know, goodness, one of the main kids that would pick on me that changed my mindset as to how I would train, that was him. You know, he got to a certain level, dropped off completely, forgot about the sport, never got into it again, still hasn't played to this day. You know, he won't play pickup or anything like that. Um, and then I have other friends, goodness, one of my best friends growing up, he, he could have gone and played anywhere, but he just lost interest later on in life. Yeah. He technical, you want to talk, like, talk about technical ball skill. He, he was on another level. And I would actually have him try to show me how his thought process and how he goes about dribbling the way that he dribbles. And he, we would be in his garage and he would be showing me. And I just, I couldn't make some that of it's mind innate, body connection. right? Yeah. yeah. No, some of it's I innate. Like, connection. You, there's something about the, 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 way people like some players yeah. shape their body or the way that they like can see things visually in their yeah, field exactly. of vision that you just don't pick up on or yep. see two or three steps ahead. That's what yep. people look at Messi and his the ability to control the ball mm -hmm. and how good he is at dribbling. The, mm -hmm. I think the biggest gift that Messi has is he's playing at a speed slightly faster than anybody else right. mentally more than anything. Yeah. He's three, four steps ahead. He's seeing the plays uh, that are un that are uh, the, the way that they're evolving yeah. before it's even happening. Yeah. It's it's a God-given ability that I surely was not. Well, I, didn't, I wasn't gifted <laughs> either, but I did name my dog Messi, so there, there's that. Oh, there's got a dog named Messi. <laughs> so, so why don't we do this? I want to briefly touch on your pro career because I, that's sure. that's a very unique thing. And I know you've downplayed what level you played at or in, all that stuff, but you you left Barry University, which is yeah. where you played soccer. Where you ultimately drafted? Where was MLS at this time? Like, talk yeah. to me about the dynamics of entering For into sure. the pro level. Yeah, yeah. So went, um, goodness. Uh, Went and then did a tryout with uh, Seattle when, goodness, they were still A-League. Yeah. And then ended up playing there, got drafted really late, played there uh, for two years, 
didn't make much money. It was A League, and yeah. then went to uh, Portland, played there for a year. They were also um, in the A League at the A-League time too. As yeah, well. a lot of people that maybe are current fans of MLS and know Portland and and Seattle's very successful MLS yeah. franchises mm-hmm. started out in the A League prior yeah. to even entering the MLS, which I think is pretty interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. that now those are some of the top fan bases and have great stadiums and yep. very successful, but they didn't start from scratch they had a long history prior to of the, right. the lower level so a league for anybody that doesn't know i guess would have been like kind of like um the second it, tier right yeah oh, okay. yeah like second tier not premiership but you could say first division so first to speak divi- if, yeah. we're, if we're speaking in english premiership yeah no, no we're going to confuse a lot of the non-soccer <laughs> people but so obviously you got to play a couple years which is a real i'm sure was an amazing experience and oh, you yeah. said there wasn't a lot of money in it yeah, but you know there yeah. wasn't a lot of money in soccer at that at that time so after you decided to put up or hang up the boots as they say um what how, where'd you like figure out what you're gonna do next like what what, what did your career look like post soccer yeah so came home and then uh back to miami and then ended up working for a company you may have heard of called abercrombie and fitch yeah definitely <laughs> heard of abercrombie and fitch <laughs> started out there as a manager in training and worked my way up to uh to general manager and that's where one day i ended up meeting my soon-to-be friend and director of sales a good friend of mine brian and uh, we hit it off immediately. And he asked me, he said, you know, Eddie, have you ever thought about becoming a hotel sales manager? I had no clue what that was. And he said, you know, you have the personality for it. I'd love to talk to you about that. I have a position open. And I go to interview with him. And he's like, do you know what a hotel sales manager is? And like, I'd done, at that point, I'd done my research. You did some so research, I said, okay. It's like, yes. And then <laughs> I explained it to him. And, um, and then he ended up hiring me and took four months out of a you know work year to teach me the business so essentially gave me a hospitality degree in four months nobody does that because you didn't study you said you studied marketing Marketing. in college Mm -hmm. i think we skipped over that but so what was it like did you just think you had the right persona for it or you know were you personable what why did he think oh i think neil would be very good at this this i think yeah i think it was personality and energy okay and you know i'm a positive person and he saw that and thought hey you know, I could mold this guy into something useful. So uh-huh. I think well, that's were what you was. were you able to pick it up in that four months where you feel like you were able to then hit the ground running yeah. after that? Okay, uh, quickly. So what does a hotel sales manager do? Because I obviously I, you, we go check in at a hotel every once in a while. You meet the hotel sales manager or at least the manager of the property. Yeah. But you, this was maybe a slightly different role. So the right. people that don't know what what is your what was your job responsibility right so you have a you you know you have general managers you may have just a you know manager on duty at a hotel but what a sales manager does is they book business at the hotel regarding conferences and events so they get uh, association groups government groups corporations um, and then even you you know could be anything from entertainment groups like um, family reunions and things like that and religious groups to book their meetings and events at a hotel. Okay. And so, you know, with the meeting space and also the sleeping rooms as well. So. Okay. So were, were you focused more on the event space at the time? Cause I know that's more of what you do now, but did you, mm-hmm. did you have a knack for that? Did you gravitate towards more of that than just the, the property itself? Like, tell me about you evolving. Cause you've had a 15 year career and we're probably skipping ahead a little bit in the yeah, timeline, no, Absolutely. but the progression of, of uh, a job like that, what does it look like. Yeah, so when I first started, I worked for the George Washington University Inn and the One Washington Circle Hotel in D.C. Okay. And it was my job to go ahead and meet with different organizations and get them to book their events at the hotel. So what I mean by that is it, I was all about the sleeping rooms. Okay. That's how I made my money, my commission and, you know, and bonuses. So I was all about 
sleeping rooms and then the event aspect of it was sort of handled by an events manager or the catering manager, so okay. to speak. And then things started to evolve as my career progressed. When I moved back down to South Florida, I ended up meeting one of uh, my mentors, Barry Moskowitz, phenomenal guy, uh, changed my life. He ended okay. up hiring me to work at the Greater Miami Convention and Visitors Bureau. And that was one of the coolest, most rewarding positions I've ever been in. Such a How great so? place to tell, work. Tell me about it. You work with all amazing people. Everybody there is smart. Everybody there is knowledgeable. And they truly, and you know, everybody, every organization says, oh, well, we treat you like family. They actually do. Okay. And you, you don't want to leave. It's, there's a reason why when I got there, the lowest tenured person had been there like 12 years. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So, yeah. And, and the reason for that is because of how well they treat everyone that works there. Every day is something new. Because not, not only because it's Miami, but it's also the industry we're in. Barry has a very thick Boston accent. He'd eh. say, Mr. Carter, grab your blazer. Let's go. <laughs> and then <laughs> next thing I'm like, where are we going? Next thing I know, we're pulling up to the, at the time was the American Airlines Arena, which where the Miami Heat play. And, you know, we see Pat Riley. We're seeing Dwayne Wade. We're seeing all these guys. And I'm getting to meet these guys. Mickey That's Aronson, cool. the yeah. owner of the Heat. And it's just like, wait, I was just sitting at my desk 20 minutes ago. Yeah. Now I'm here meeting Pat Riley and just different things like that. That's and, cool. you, know, you know, being able to contribute on Super Bowl bids. You know things like that, like that. I would never thought that I would be a part of in my life. Did you actually you got to work on the Super Bowl bid? Like you, they, I think you were telling me that earlier. Like that's a five year kind of uh, runway to plan, right? Right. Yeah. So what what did you do? What was your role on on one of those bids? Pareto Health is the manager of the largest employee benefits group captive in the United States, and it's also now the main sponsor of the Self Funded with Spencer podcast. I chose to partner with Pareto Health for three main reasons. Number one their dedication to improving the world of health benefits. Number two, their mission to reduce volatility and to make self-funding simple for mid-sized employers. And number three, the strength and scale of their program. With over 2,300 member groups and more than $1 billion of stop-loss premium under management, Pareto Health is the most robust solution of its kind in the country, period. Stay tuned for more information because I'm sure I'll be featuring them on an episode of the podcast very soon. Visit Pareto Health at ParetoHealth.com or follow them on LinkedIn to stay up to date on the latest news and developments. I essentially was in a supporting role with Barry and as he navigated that process, because the crazy thing was for the, the it was the last, I think it was like 12 years, every Super Bowl that was in Miami, he was personally responsible for getting them there. Jeez. Okay. So uh, that process, the RFP for that, yeah, is about that thick. Well, you're using, you're and, speaking my language yeah. now. RFP, man. Yeah. So <laughs> like, and that that RFP is that thick. So like, I mean, what? Tell me a little bit about the economics of a Super Bowl bid. Are we talking in the hundreds of millions of dollars? Hundreds of millions okay. of dollars, and then it's um, when you're so when you're working for a convention and visitors bureau, it is a situation where you're now selling a, a destination yes. and not just a hotel. Okay. So I had to go from thinking, okay, hey, I'm selling this property or that property to, oh, no, wait, I represent 230 properties all throughout Miami-Dade County. Okay. However, it's different because now Super Bowl is here, but you have to get all of these hotels to commit to offering a certain amount of rooms mm -hmm. for the Super Bowl in order to win the business. Yeah. So you're then saying, hey, listen, Fountain Blue, I need you to give me, you know, uh, 800 rooms during Super Bowl week and the rate needs to be 
$1,100, you know, per night. Well, yeah. then they're like, no, I don't want to do that because come closer to the Super Bowl, I could sell that same room for $6,000 a night. Yeah. But I need you to play ball in order for us to win this. Yeah. So you can even get. Yeah, that there's got to be some some give and take, right? right? Because it's like well, if you don't contribute, you might actually prevent us from getting this in the first place. And right. There goes your six thousand dollars a night, right? So you're trying to find where that seat sweet spot is yep. in a, in bulk yep. to help you win the bid. So is it kind of like herding cats, getting all these different people to? Uh, yeah. Ultimately, did you guys win the bid? I don't know. Won the bid. What year yeah. was this? Was it in Miami? Oh goodness, uh, the hundred. It was the 100th year anniversary of um, the NFL. What was it? Oh, goodness. Don't worry. Yeah, we'll, exactly we'll, right now. Yeah, no yeah. worries. Uh, well, I'll have people look it up. They're probably, some people right now are Googling. Like, Miami's last Super Bowl. Yeah, Miami's last Super Bowl. Okay, <laughs> so we won the bid. Like, did you get to go actually enjoy and experience I it? I did though? not. You didn't? <laughs> no. So you had to work it or what? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, no, I just didn't get to. Just didn't oh, get to man, tank, I, all to that work. That. But, I mean, you contributed to having it there, and I'm sure it's yeah, a huge yeah. boon to the economy. I'm sure it went off went off without yeah. a hitch and all that stuff. That's that's got to be fun and nerve wracking simultaneously for something that's a once in a lifetime almost almost uh, bid. So how long did you work at the Miami bureau doing more of that? That's uh, about world? six years total. Okay. Yeah, six years total. Yeah, and um, you see everything from goodness from uh, you know events that take you know maybe two three months to put together. They're small. Yeah to events that take five or six years. Right. Well, let's talk about that. I want to kind of pull it into my industry for a little bit because, sure. you know, you don't have to know anything about insurance, but I want to talk about what it looks like to put together a conference. I just sure. came from a great conference a couple of weeks ago in Miami of all places. And you know, the Biltmore, the Biltmore yeah. I, it's uh was the U powered symposium that Emma Fox and David Contorno put on. And it was amazing. I always tell people about it. I'm not, you know, I have no affiliation. I'm not uh, remunerated by, from them, but it was a great conference, but we have, things like SIA and CIAB and Benefits Pro and all these acronyms mm -hmm. um, that probably don't mean much to you, but I realize there is a lot that has to go into these events. And oh, I've yeah. always wondered, if I'm gonna put together an insurance conference, mm -hmm. and let's say it's an annual conference, and I'm looking at a location, talk to me about the things that might be in that RFP. Like, I wanna sure. understand that from your side uh, of the fence. Yeah. yeah, it's something that big, to be quite honest, you wanna start it the day after the, the other one is one. done. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You want to start it yeah. the next day. And there are many event planners that are smart that will get their RFPs out for multiple years. That allows you to, to lower your costs because so say, for example, I send out an RFP for, mm. you know, my next five or six conferences or even two or three, one hotel or conference center or convention center may say, Hey, listen, you you sent us your RFP for the next three years. If you give us all three, we will lower the price to this. Yeah, yeah. You know, makes sense. Right. Yeah. So it, oftentimes they'll keep it in the same place. So they may say, "Hey, no, you know what? This one moves around." And that may depend on the industry. It may depend on um, the organization. It may be, may depend on many or, or just the planner preference. Uh, in addition to that, you may include not only where you want to go, but you're going to include the amount of room nights per night your pattern typically that you would like. So say for example, if the pattern is Monday through Thursday, well, in some cities, that's going to be more palatable than other cities. Okay, so I think about I'm, that, the days of the week that you do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if I'm in Manhattan, where everything happens in during the week and on the weekend, Manhattan is dead, well, that Monday through Thursday pattern is a lot more expensive Makes sense. than if I'm in 
Barbados. Okay. You know, yeah, then, yeah. then that Monday through fr Friday pattern is less expensive. So you think you have to think about everything from the days of the week, how many years. I mean, like when we do RFPs in the insurance world, mm -hmm. there are such things as rate guarantees that'll get you better pricing if yep. you lock it in for three years. I totally understand that. You know, what about kind of like the booking of the rooms and, you know, discovering which space is most suitable for your needs? What are the things that you need to think about? Let's say I have three or 400 people that I plan on attending. Like what are some of the things I need to think about as somebody putting together an event to, to look out for? Absolutely. You also want to think about your peak regarding the sleep, the sleeping room. So for example, if I have, you know, 250 people on the Monday, but then because of the way my conference is set up, I only have 25 people sleeping at the hotel on Tuesday. The hotel's going to hate that. Okay. Because you you are throwing off their pattern. Ah. And so you're going to have more hotels that will turn that business down because of that. Interesting. So yeah, so that's one thing you want to you want to ensure. I mean, it doesn't happen often, but you want to ensure your peak is it's pretty stable. I see. Um, well, and then like you usually like if you're if I'm somebody looking at this, I want a block of rooms, right? Mm -hmm. I I assume I can if I get 400 people in, I assume 200 people might want to stay on site or something yeah. like that. So I go to you helping with plan this event, and you're mm -hmm. shopping the different hotels. Are you getting a certain percentage discount off of a block, or how does that how does that usually work? The sales manager will tell you you are, but you're not. <laughs> you're not. It's uh, it it, it it's all going to depend on um, on what you're looking at. So, for example, if I'm if you shop a certain piece of business to me regarding a, you know a conference, you bring it to me and you're like, hey, we are looking at your hotel. It's the only hotel that we're looking at in this area. But, you know, we're also looking at a hotel in L.A. and we're looking at a hotel in, you know, so and so and sure. wherever the case may be. Well, I have to look and see how I stack up against those hotels and what what uh, my how I should go ahead and rate myself. So, for, for example, if you tell me if I'm in Miami and you tell me that I'm going up against a hotel in, you know, Tulsa and then another one in, you know, uh, Winchester, Virginia. And then I'm like, OK, well, my destination, I believe is is more likable it's something that i believe people are going to gravitate to more yeah. i can price a little bit higher and they'll understand that this is miami and so sure i can price a little higher however if i'm going up against you know la and manhattan and chicago and it's in uh like you know april or something like that then i'm like okay well any of those are are you know are desirable at that point. Sure. If it's if it's February though, however, everybody's what, gonna, you know we were just right. in Miami in February right. at the Biltmore, which I th right. think so you I'm said you know that rate up. Yeah, yeah, and it was be I mean literally people were hanging by the pool. I'm yeah. like walking by and you know a sport coat coming between you know conference mm -hmm. events, and I'm like I see people lounging by the pool getting sun. I'm yeah. like this is February. Like what's going on? But that's part of what you the draw for Miami, yeah, obviously. Absolutely. What about kind of some of the uh, behind the scenes stuff that you don't think about? We were talking food, uh, yep. yeah buffet style versus I think you said plated is what yeah. the terminology is yeah, so I didn't even think about this but the mm -hmm. buffet actually could be potentially more expensive because people are coming back for second and third helpings right yep yeah a lot more expensive because you can't control the consumption yeah you know everybody there's no is, portion control right right, right. Yeah. you know and then a lot of that is going to go to waste as well whereas if it's plated it's hey this is your plate that's what you get we know the cost we can control the cost and it so you you have to take all that into consideration Another thing that, I mean, goodness, and then the, the thing that we haven't discussed in the 
the conference and event space is COVID and how COVID have affected the market. Yeah, please. I'd like yeah. you to weigh in on that because I know hospitality industry as a whole was yeah. one of the absolutely hardest hit because you couldn't travel, right? Yep. And you couldn't stay anywhere. A lot of people had to be let go. You know, so talk to me about what For that sure. what that experience is like being somebody that's booking those types of locations, how devastating it might have been. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 87% of hospitality was laid off during COVID. Jeez. So yeah, you have a situation where Goodness, I know of some hotels where the general manager was washing the buses, the, the, the hotel like shuttle buses, the general manager was washing them because they didn't have anyone yeah. on staff. It would be him and maybe a couple housekeepers and that's it yeah. on staff. So yeah. he was doing everything. Uh, so you had a situation like that, but then you also had this great reshuffling. So everybody that you knew, because you know everybody knows everyone in the industry. Hospitality is big, but it's small. So I would know people all over the world and I would know, oh, hey, yeah, so-and-so's at this hotel, so-and-so's at that hotel, so-and-so works for this convention center. All of a sudden, those people aren't there anymore. Yeah. You had many that are in different industries. You have many that once things picked back up, they ended up at different hotels or uh, different convention and visitors bureaus. So all Has of a sudden- Has the industry recovered like fully? It seems so. Okay. It, it, it seems so. I think that there will always be a stigma you know, you have what ended up happening right after COVID was meeting planners were booking shorter term. So they wouldn't book as far out okay. instead of booking six or seven months out for an event. They would book three months out okay. because just there was that uncertainty. Yeah. I mean, I know. went to a conference a couple year, years. Was it 2021? I believe where we was in person and we were mm -hmm. celebrating being back in person. But a lot of people still chose to attend virtually. Yeah. And they even did all of the speaking engagements where typically you'd go and watch somebody on stage mm -hmm. in the room speak, they were all on TVs and it was like yep. this weird kind of hybrid and they did it just sort of as this very, I, I think it was a very um, uh, much a precautionary measure. Right. It's like, just in case this thing gets canceled, we still have a virtual that we plan for, yep. but it wasn't exactly what you expected when you went in person too, because they had to make this decision just to ensure that it didn't just get shut down altogether, right? right. Which I couldn't imagine having to weigh the potential for those things to happen right before an event yep. too, and you lose all that money. Um, so like it's kind of recovered now. Has anything changed? Like broadly, you can say now this is definitely different than it used to be in terms of planning. You mentioned a little bit of like the how near term to the event itself. But what else maybe is like now it's completely different than it used to be. The, the virtual aspect, okay. it was totally taken for granted prior to COVID. Okay. It, it was looked at as sort of, OK, yeah, you know, you can attend virtually, but you know, no, nobody ever really does. And, you know, but now it's looked at as essential. You okay. know, you have many organizations that will have a virtual component for their events because they understand that it is needed now and it's a part of our world mm -hmm. in meeting and events moving forward. You must have some sort of uh, virtual component, whether that's with every event you do or you have your in-person events and then you have your, your virtual events separately. Yeah. Everyone now, virtual is more prevalent than it was previously. Yeah, and that I'm I'm still torn how I feel about all that because mm -hmm. I spend I spend most of my days on Zoom, yep. um, and software naturally is is it lends to being able to sell over a virtual screen, right? Because right. I'm selling software that they're going to use on a screen, so like it works. 
But like the in-person, every time I have a conference, I'm literally like, yes, yep. I get to go here. I get to go there and I get to see so-and-so. I mean, I remember there's people that I've known for like two years through LinkedIn where we're chatting all the time, mm -hmm. commenting on each other's posts, had calls. And then I finally meet them for the first time. And it's like an old friend, you know, give them yep. a big hug. And it's like, there's something about that in-person. Um, and in, I've been at events and I'm sure you experienced this where the event just goes so well and yep. it's so much fun and everybody's talking about it afterwards. And you, I'm sure that's got to be rewarding from your standpoint to help put on something like that. That might be, you know, something monumental in their lives or careers that they attended. So yep. do you have any stories or something that you love an event is specifically that you can share maybe a story about a success yeah. story? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Goodness. When I was, uh, probably my favorite and you'll, you'll actually like this. I was a huge part of bringing Soccer X to Miami for the first time. Okay. Okay. And uh, had I was connected very closely with Soccer X for years up until COVID, and um, we did the first event. It was at Marlins Park, so the big Marlins, uh, yeah. big yeah. Marlins Stadium down there. They booked it there, and there were so many things that were it, different challenges that were presenting themselves that would have stopped the event from taking place. But so Soccer X is a big soccer expo, so to speak. So anything that's, uh, that you could think of that's product-based, that's brand new, that these companies want to showcase and they want to get in front of uh, professional programs. So yeah. you had representatives from Ajax there, from Real Madrid, um, goodness, Manchester United, you had a Borussia Dortmund, everyone you could think of, you had all of these representatives there to Very see cool. these different tactics. Of, or to, sorry, to see these different um, products. So for example, they had one that you'd love. They had, they would set up a box or it could be a box, an octagon, however, and the boxes had, or not boxes, but these. Are you talking about the Dortmund one? I've seen Christian Pulisic in this where it's like, it's like an and octagon light up. and they light up and yes. you have to turn and it beeps and then you right. have to play the ball. I mean, right. that thing is sick. Looking. Yes, yeah. that's what I'm talking yeah. yeah, so the first time I ever saw this was at Soccer X. I was like, oh my gosh, like I would have loved this growing up as a kid that was there and so you had these you have these professional teams that go there they see this and then they would place bids on this okay another cool thing that i saw was on the jerseys they would make it so that you would have qr codes built into the numbers on the back of the jerseys so when you would uh -huh. you know say a player shoots he misses they show a close-up of him and then he's turning and he's walking away you could use your phone and then get the QR code and it would take you right to the team's website where you could purchase his jersey. Oh, wow. And they were doing all types of That's things. That's awesome yeah. stuff, man. So that, that, that'd be a fun one. Do you have any that you could share any horror stories though, or, oh, or like, like of things that went like totally wrong? Cause it's always fun to hear those as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. So I, <laughs> the, it was a, I'll just say this cause I don't know if I can say anymore. Yeah, protect the a, identities yeah, know, right? of those involved I and know. all that stuff. So this was a government group, high profile government group. Still to this day, it was when I was working in DC, a hotel that I worked at in DC. Still to this day, they've never had a bigger February than they had that year because of this group. And okay. I was so hungry to bring this group in. They were like, we need 120 meeting spaces you know, for nine people each. And I was like, wait, why don't we just use the rooms as meeting spaces? We'll move in tables and, and do it that way. So we brought all this in, you know, you, you know and, and we, we contracted this group. It was huge, a couple hundred thousand dollars for this small hotel. Okay. It was mind blowing. Everybody was so excited about it. And then we quickly realized the, the IT, the head of IT was like, do we have the bandwidth to cover 120 laptops on our, uh, on uh -huh. our uh, Wi-Fi right now. 
We were scrambling to figure that out. We ended up spending like $16,000 to upgrade the Wi-Fi in the building. But that wasn't until the second day. That's when we figured it out. So, so was everybody complaining in day one? They, everybody was Furious. upset. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah the Wi-Fi was terrible. I had to go. I got my, I got, uh, what, maybe about uh, 50 bottles of wine to walk around giving Same. them out to those that were yeah. in charge just to smooth things Did you over. guys have to refund any of the money on no, that? No, thankfully we didn't. And thankfully, because it was day one, it didn't affect much. They were able to pick up from that and and, and continue on. So that wasn't too bad. Uh, they didn't come back to the hotel again yeah, after yeah. that, but they they did. They were happy with the result. Well, and that's just a, that applies to any walk of life, right? There mm -hmm. are going to be unforeseen yep. issues, right? Part of what I presume you're paid for is solving in real time things like that that happen. Absolutely. And that, again, that applies to my world and software, to insurance, to sports, you name it. And I think some of what we learned as athletes is the ability to solve problems yep. in real time. Soccer is especially, you know, you're, everything is fluid. Yep, absolutely. There's no set plays really except for maybe a few set pieces. And so everything you're solving in real time and there's yep. an issue, I'm tired, you know, maybe I made a bad tackle and now I'm worried about getting another car. You know, there's all these things that you solve for and that's part of your, your, your role. And so that was funny that you're able to figure it out and thank yeah. God it wasn't devastating. Last but not least, and let's move on to, I think the last part of the podcast, sure. which is a real passion of yours, which I'm yes. anxious to hear about. Um, but have you have you done anything in in the insurance space? Have you done anything like a benefits conference or yeah, carriers? Done, yeah, I'd love done. to hear maybe um, you know because I want to hopefully obviously hopefully we'll get you some attention uh, after this <laughs> if an opportunity. But what have you done in the insurance space? Well, just I've uh, just partnered with different insurance meeting planager uh, planners for their conferences. Okay, so just to, you know, so the, similar to the conference that you went at at the Biltmore. Yeah, uh, just to contract that and help them plan that so to speak which is isn't very difficult it isn't very different than many other conferences yeah. in the corporate space or even in the pharmaceutical space pharmaceutical is a little bit more tricky because of all the rules and, uh, and regulations and yeah. red tape involved but but yeah i mean the it seems like the conference that you went to is a pretty typical layout. Well, that's, I would, I'd actually probably uh, presume you're right, right? It was a corporate conference, right? Yeah. There's a stage, there's keynote speakers, there's breakout rooms with other talk tracks, you know, there were, were scheduled breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah. I imagine it was fairly routine for the Biltmore to put on. And yeah. it, again, it was a great conference, but I always wondered if our industry has any, is anything special. And it's probably not when it comes to event planning, because it's not, it's really not probably that complicated in terms of the delivery for a hotel to be able to to do it, right? No, no, not to, but the the one thing is when they see insurance, they know you guys have money, so then. That, that's what I always wonder. Like, I feel like we have one of, some of the biggest travel and expense budgets or yeah. Yeah, t and &E budgets. Um, our, our industry has money. There's no doubt about that. But why don't we move on to, to phase three of this, uh, Neil? And I want to give you an opportunity to talk about sure. a recent passion of yours yeah. and that you've almost got me excited about it and I know nothing about it. But you love Formula One yes. and you started an Instagram page around yes. it. You're, you're shooting your own content. But how the heck did you get into Formula One? Because I know it was a recent thing for you. This podcast is sponsored by PlanSight. PlanSight is a technology for employee benefits brokers to more efficiently manage their RFP process for any group size, all funding types, and over 20 benefit lines and point solutions. PlanSight is the only end-to-end -end RFP technology on the market today. Let's modernize your RFP process together. Check us out at plansite.com. Yeah, so, I mean, years ago, saw the movie Rush with uh, Nicky Lauda. Well, the, the character is Nicky Lauda, who's obviously a real-life person, God rest his soul, and then James Hunt, God rest his soul also. But the story was about their rivalry 
in the 70s as drivers and it is a phenomenal who story. are the actors in that was that oh uh, goodness was that um, matt dane was that the one with matt uh, no now? that that's ford verse for okay okay Look, but i'm i'm forgetting the actors. don't worry about it i was now. thinking that was the one i was trying to make the connection but you're right that was ford versus ferrari okay yeah but you saw that movie and was it just really good saw that, what, the was movie exciting? was phenomenal and then it was just exciting the okay. you know the teams coming together and building their own cars. It was unlike NASCAR where it's all the cars have to be the same, you know, all the specifications have to be the same, everything's the same, but they have to build their own cars and they're worried about making sure that they have a winning car. So it's not just having a great driver, it's having a winning, it's having a, a winning car, a great team behind it also, great strategists, great pit crew, great team principal. The, it's not just about the driver. It becomes about the entire team itself. Well, and you, you mentioned to me the movie, right? And then mm -hmm. you, you said something recently uh, while we were chatting beforehand called The Netflix Effect. So yes. Netflix has a show, right, about right. Formula One. What's that show, that show called? Drive to Survive. Drive to yeah. Survive. And you, this is funny. You told me you watched the first episode at like 10 a.m. Yep. and then binged the entire yep. thing through like midnight that night. Just got hooked. So got hooked why was it, is it that good of a show? Like I haven't, I haven't seen the it. The show is phenomenal be, for a few reasons. Number one, Formula One, in addition to being a great sport, it is also a massive piece of drama. Okay. So think of what I believe, you know, that the Housewives show for ladies oh, yeah, would be like. Yeah. It's like that. It's for, got that soap opera for feel Formula a One. Bit. Okay. Yeah, because so the teammates, usually teammates aren't the best of friends because that's your only barometer for success or failure. Because at the end of the day, everybody's car is different. So right now, Mercedes, um, their, their car is... Third, I believe, heading into this season, if um, I compare, or you know what, better, a better example would be uh, Max at Red Bull, world champion in a world champion car. I can't compare his results to Alex Albon at Williams, who is in a, a, a car that's been the worst car for the past five or six years. So I can't compare the results and say, well, Max is clearly better than than Alex. I mean, it he is, but yeah. <laughs> but you can't in that regard say this is apples to apples because one is in one of the greatest cars ever made, the other one is in an awful car. And so you only can really judge yourself against your teammate to where you know. Okay, where you yeah, because there's there's two, there's you're two driving drivers. The same car. Yeah, okay, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So yeah. that you got the intrigue, you got the bug from this show. Yes. But then the, is that that would lead you into go? All right, now I want to go actually watch the races, right? So yeah, I watched the so you know watched the movie and I was like, okay, this is cool, and I would catch races from time to time. Then Drive to Survive came out and I was hooked. I immediately after the the last episode, the tenth episode. I researched everything that I could for another two or three hours that night, then started watching. There was a, a race, I'll never forget, it was Hockenheim 2019. That race was gonna be taking place in two weeks. I watched that race, and that race was one of the most entertaining races in the last like three, or, three to five years. So it was just interesting that that coincidentally happened yeah. then because it was in Germany and in the pouring rain and so many cars were sliding all over the place. You know, so many cars didn't finish and it, it was just extremely, extremely interesting. So then I, I started researching the technical aspect of it and getting, getting interested in that uh, as well. You know, what are, you know, what are the, what's tire degradation? What does it mean when the tires fall off the cliff? What is the chassis? And, you know, wait, what are rear diffusers? How does that work? What is downforce? What, you know, when do I need high downforce versus low downforce? Yeah. And learning all that, you know, going down a rabbit hole with that. Yeah, I was gonna say, it sounds like you go down the rabbit yeah. hole because you told me like you kind of did that similar thing with World War II. Yeah. And like you, it sounds like once you get hooked on something, you go all in yes. on it. But so I want to go back to the term, the Netflix effect yes. that you, you mentioned to me off camera earlier. 
the Netflix effect, what do you what does that mean? I want you to describe that for the people that don't don't understand that term. Absolutely. So the Netflix effect is what they are calling this surge of fans that it's the what prompted this massive surge of millions of fans to gravitate to Formula One. Okay. So they go and they watch Drive to Survive on Netflix and all of a sudden they're hooked. It Drive to Survive enables you to not only learn the sport very quickly, I mean, within 10 hours of watching the show. Yeah. So you learn the sport, but then not only that, you know the entire cast of characters and you're completely caught up to speed. Wow. So it's the first time in history where a sport has brought on millions of fans, but you know, almost overnight, but those fans don't know much about the sport. So they're brand new, like kind of like yourself, yeah. right? At the yeah. time, a couple years ago, you would have been brand new. Didn't you say like the Austin race or something doubled in size from a couple hundred thousand Almost, to 400,000? Yeah, it went from 110,000 in 2019 to 410,000 last year. Whoa. Yeah, in person. And do you think a lot of that is attributable to that new fan base coming over from the show? I mean, it was a the, really popular show. I haven't watched it yet. I feel like I have to watch it now. The vast majority. And you can and Netflix knows it, everyone knows it. And and the some something that I hadn't mentioned before, I mean, y the US will now be one of few countries that has three races. Okay. And so it's no surprise that they went to Miami, a very, you know, sexy U.S. city with disposable income. And then their third race in the U.S. is, surprise, surprise, Las Vegas, ah. you know, which has the second largest disposable income on the planet. Okay. And then to, I, I, don't quote me on this, but I believe it's Singapore that's number one. Okay. And when asked about it, Stefano Domenicali, the, he's the, the president of Formula One, he said, well, it has the most disposable income yeah. in the U.S. Yeah, because you tell me it's a, it's a little bit more of a sophisticated sport than like mm -hmm. what I traditionally would know with the uh, the NASCAR racing, right? Sure. Which is a little more blue collar, yeah. fun. It's not quite like the Rolexes, and you're you're saying like people are wearing blazers. You know, I, maybe I'd I'd fit in in the Formula You would. One you'd world. fit. You'd fit right um, in. But it's so. What is it? Do they do they intentionally make it feel like it's a little bit more of an aspirational kind of sport in the fan base itself? It's always been that way. Okay. I mean, when these uh, when the sport began, you had many drivers that uh, what we call gentlemen drivers. They were multimillionaires, and they were driving. They were they would pay for their own drive, so to speak, so that they could drive. I see. So today, you have not all, but many are come from wealthy backgrounds or their legacy kids where their parents were drivers. So Max Verstappen, who I mentioned, Joss Verstappen is his father. He was a driver. Carlos Sainz Jr. is a driver at Ferrari. His dad is Carlos Sainz Sr. He was a rally car driver. And then you have others who just come from wealthy families like uh, Lance Stroll. His dad is Lawrence Stroll. His dad owns the team he's on. His dad owns <laughs> yeah. Aston Martin. Well, naturally, yeah, yeah, So yeah, yeah. his dad's a multi-billionaire. But then you have those rare, like a Lewis Hamilton, like a Lewis right? Hamilton yeah. that came from nothing. Yeah, and tell the story real up. quick because it's such a cool story, and I'm sure a lot of people know it. But I'd love for yeah. you to recap it because I heard you say it, and it like it it drew it drew me in when you told me about the history of how he got into racing. He, th there needs to be a movie done about him because you know he got into karting when he sorry he got into um, RC driving when I believe he was four and he was beating grown men in com competitive. So the remote RC control, cars. yeah, yeah, yeah. and. Somebody told his father, your kid has an eye for this sport. He has a talent for this sport. Yeah. You need to have him develop. He then went on to karting where, you know, he's driving a, a handmade, a, a cart that's been handed down maybe four or five times and that his dad's working on. And he 
is beating kids that have two or three mechanics for their carts. When did you say dad mm -hmm. was like 12, 14 hour days of yep. work and then coming home and working on the cart a few hours a day yep. after that? And I mean, just the passion, what I love about that story is a father's sort of commitment to see his son succeed, right? Yep, and like absolutely. that sacrifice of time and effort and learning so that his son could benefit and maybe maybe reach a certain level right beyond what he was able to provide and all those things. That's like, that's such a universal human story yep, too. Absolutely. And it's so cool that he's as good as he is. Is he one of the top, if not the top drivers? He's like the, where does he rank kind so of overall? Many people will argue who's better, who's better. He's the greatest driver of all time. Oh, wow. Of all time. He's wow. a seven-time world champion. The only driver to match him at seven is Michael Schumacher. Okay. Um, nobody else comes close. All in, he's a Mercedes guy, right? In, in he's Hammer? Mercedes okay. now. He was at McLaren. He's been at Mercedes the past 10 years. He was okay. at McLaren before that. That's Did he win he with first. both cars, though? Yep. Okay, cool. Yeah, he yeah. won his first, and that's the other thing. Yeah. He won his first championship with McLaren in 08, in 2008. I think he was a sophomore in Formula One. Um, won his first championship then, then the last six have been with Mercedes. Okay. And um, he has 103 race wins. The next closest is Michael Schumacher with 90, I believe. Wow. And Lewis Hamilton's still relatively young, isn't right. he? Yeah, he's, uh, on the, he's 36. So, I mean, he, I What's think What's a that career? Like, like, is there a shelf life where the, the guys usually retire at a certain age? So, it, yeah, most guys will, I think, will start to look up to retire around now. However, you have Fernando Alonso, who's phenomenal, and he is 41, I believe. Okay. Uh, he's still racing. He's at Aston Martin. And Lewis has shown no plans to retire. He's come out and said he has no plans on retiring. He still loves what he does. So the hope is that they will put together a car that is good enough for him to win with. It wasn't last year's car, and it doesn't look like it's going to be this year's car, given testing last week. Yeah. But once they do get a car good enough for him, I believe that we'll see him win at least one or two more. Well, yeah, you kind of hope so with somebody yeah. that, that uh, reached his level. The, the formula thing you were describing to that, that to me, which I think is interesting, like every seven years there's a yep. reset of a formula. So what is the formula and how does that change the way these people build the cars and go about racing them for that segment of time? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So the usually it's every seven years. This past formula was eight years because of COVID. Okay. So they held off because the teams, many teams went through financial hardship due to COVID. However, now it's, yeah, it's every seven years. So we just entered a new formula last year. And so this new formula is, is created in a way where the cars can follow closer together. Oops, my apologies. But can follow closer together because before what would happen is there's so much hot air coming off of these cars that one car chasing another would start to overheat ah, because of the heat okay. coming from the car in front. So now that air, the way the car is designed, goes up into the air. Interesting. Yeah, so there's less what we call dirty air hitting the car directly behind. So follow closer, mm -hmm. probably more passing, I would presume. More overtaking, right? absolutely. More yeah. overtaking, okay. Yeah. So th this is what I, I didn't realize, right, is mm -hmm. the sophistication of the actual science behind it yeah. and all the aerodynamics and these rule changes and how to adapt to the rule yeah. changes, which is, I guess, how you keep it continually interesting right. to watch, right? Absolutely. ClaimDoc is a medical claim auditing and member advocacy company. We provide fiduciary services to employer-sponsored benefit plans, allowing them to create an environment where we ensure that the benefit plans are being charged in a fair and reasonable basis. My business is basically 
people, and it become a real simple transition. We thought it was gonna be far more complex. I've saved, we'll say hundreds of thousands of dollars. I could not say enough about ClaimDoc. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're talking, there's, uh, there's over 10,000 sensors on these cars. And much of the technology in road cars comes from Formula One, the innovation from Formula One. Makes sense, yeah. Yeah, these cars are built from scratch in these facilities and they will upgrade on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. So they're thinking of something, they're designing it on a computer, they're printing it right out there, almost like it, or creating yeah. it right there, and then getting it on the car. And the beautiful thing is, is that they do it with so many things. When COVID first hit, Mercedes actually created breathing apparatuses for those that have trouble breathing uh, from having COVID. Oh. So they were able to quickly pivot and create those devices and have those distributed. Yeah, interesting. Yep. Well, so what about, um, do you think with the advent of like uh, cars that drive themselves, like the Tesla, <laughs> do you think we'll get to a point where Formula One is driverless? No. No, okay. No. I think that, that driver element is everything. Yeah. The being able to, to figure out when to brake later and to get on the throttle earlier and how to manage a race. So. One thing that we didn't touch on was the was DRS, the drag reduction system. Okay. And depending on a race, depending on the track, you could have two of them, you could have three of them, you could have one of them. And what that is, is the you have a flap on your rear wing that opens up when you are within a second of the car ahead of you. Okay. And it gives you anywhere from, I think, like 16 to 30 extra horsepower, depending on the track. So to make overtaking easier, to create mm. more opportunities to overtake. However, when things get really tricky, there was a race last year, I think it was last year in Jeddah. I've seen one of the, that, that was probably one of the best fights I've seen that included trying to get the advantage with DRS in, in quite some time because you have Charles Leclerc battling Max Verstappen and there's a certain line that you get to. And whoever hits that line first, the, the car behind them is the car that gets DRS if they're within a second of the car in front. Ah. So you had both of them looking at each other, <laughs> jostling to see who could go fast, but then still break in time so that the other hit the line before them. So that way coming off of that, Wild. they would get DRS to attack the other driver. You know, I'm just listening to you talk, man. I could see you sitting at uh, <laughs> a, like a, a, a desk on Formula One's like, not halftime show, whatever the equivalent of the yeah, halftime yeah. show or the analysis <laughs> show. Uh, we're here with Neil Carter. Neil's going to give us a rundown of the race, man. I literally, I'm just like watching you. It's like watching somebody that's an analyst at a soccer show or something. And it's funny how much you've been able to pick this up in such a short period of time. You've actually, you're kind of getting me intrigued about the sport, uh, you know, just from listening to you talk. But is there, is there anything that you would say if I've never watched a Formula One race before? Mm -hmm. Why would I turn it on when there's an upcoming race? What, are, what, what, what is it about it that you would say, you got to watch it because of this? There are so many things that can create uncertainty that you truly do not know what is going to happen. Okay. You can say, okay, hey, yeah, you know what? Max may win this race. He has the fastest car. He's the driver that's most on point right now. He's going to win this race. And then he loses it. Mm -hmm. And there are so many things to consider because these cars are created from scratch. You have, and there's, there's weather as well. Then there's strategy. So, you know, touching on the different tire compounds, the fact that now this year there's six tire compounds. There's the C, the C zero through the C five, the C five being the softest, the C zero being the hardest. However, the Pirelli only gives you a choice of three per race. And yeah. that's hard, medium, soft. If you get the strategy wrong, well then you get you the whole lose. race wrong. Right. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right, so there's lose. just 
because it's so complex, mm -hmm. because there's so many variables, even things that are completely unforeseen, like it starts to rain, right? Yep. Or so-and-so's got a cold and he's feeling a little bit dreary today yeah. and he can't pay attention as well. There's so many things that can go right or wrong that nearly anything can happen, right? So like I look at NASCAR and NASCAR is a little bit more simplistic, right? Mm -hmm. It's around an oval track. And you were saying like the cars are really similar in that yeah. regard versus the Formula One, there's a little bit more variable. You know, so there's just the intrigue, a little bit of the drama, but the fact that it's got anything as possible yeah. would draw you in. So if you want to turn on a race, what what should I look for though? Like, what am I looking for? I don't I know nothing about it. None of these technical things make any sense to me. What what should I pay attention to the first race I ever watch? Just the the thing that I would say to just pay attention to are the the pit strategies that okay. each team chooses. So they get to decide what tires they start the race on. So for example, if I'm in like the race in Bahrain. Bahrain is in the desert. It's hot. However, it's a night race. Okay. So they have to decide, okay, they'll probably go medium to hard. However, will that work? Or do I need to do two stops? Is two stops faster? I lose at Bahrain, you lose 19 seconds in the pit stop. Cause when you enter the pit stop, you have 60 miles an hour. You pit pits usually about anywhere 2.4 seconds to three seconds. That's they can change four tires in that amount of time. Oh, right? yeah. yeah it's, that's, it's so insane. Red Bull hold the Red Bull pit crew holds the world record, and it's like, I think, 2.34 seconds. To change four tires. Four tires, yeah. Insanity. Yeah. And I can't. It takes me 2.4 hours to change one of my tires. <laughs> yeah. I'm not very good at it. Um, but so I, I get I get all that. Why don't we do this, Neil? Because this this podcast will come out maybe six to eight weeks from now. For sure. What's the upcoming race? I want to hear your prediction. And then when it comes out, we'll be able to tell whether or not you, you were able to predict accurately who wins. Absolutely. So I'm very excited for this race because so Bahrain is one of my favorite tracks. Okay. And one thing that I've noted is that I've noticed and many have gone on to say is that the track with elevation changes produce the best racing. And okay. that seems to be true that we see that in Interlagos in Brazil. Uh, we see that with Silverstone as well in England. My prediction is that Max Verstappen wins this race. This is the Red Bull driver. Correct? Red Bull driver. Okay. Yeah. That car is you've taken a car created by Adrian Newey, who's one of the greatest car designers in Formula One history. And then they which was the RB18 last year. Then they perfected it this year, the RB19. And one of the things that I'm going to be touching on on my podcast yeah. is the fact that they are able to run, this is allegedly, they're able to run this car 10 millimeters lower to the ground, which creates more downforce, which means the car is faster. Ah, how so, do they yeah. do that? Like, how, do you know, like, is there any uh, uh, speculation on how they're As able to accomplish that? that? Yeah, how low it is? So the, apparently they were able to make the store, uh, make the floor stronger. And so by making the floor stronger, it won't break apart when they do hit any type of bumps or okay. rivets in the road because they can run it lower. So downforce is an effect that you're essentially, the, as the car is moving, yeah. the air is being pulled from out of it like a suction cup from and under the car. bringing it down mm -hmm. to the ground. So the downforce on yep. the car. Yeah, yeah. So scientifically, they say you can run a Formula One car upside down in a tunnel and it will stick to the ceiling. I've heard that, yeah. which is bananas. But I, I don't, I mean, has anybody tried it? I don't no. know if you can't try it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's go back. So prediction, what, what, what are the dates For, on the Bahrain race? Uh, sure, d dates, oh goodness, what's tomorrow? Tomorrow's the... So second? Tomorrow's the second, which means Friday is the third. Okay. So the third is when the weekend starts. That's practice. You have um, FP2. Of, of March. Uh, I want to make sure because I don't March, know if this will yes, come out yeah. in May or so. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, practice FP2 and FP3. Sorry, FP1 and FP2. Saturday is FP3, which is the third practice session. Free practice is what FP stands for. And then you have qualifying after that. 
who are qualifying determines your race order. Okay. Uh, so, you know, fastest to slowest, that's the way you're going to start the race. Yep. The race is Sunday morning, which is, goodness, what's that? Fifth? March 5th? Yeah, I think the 5th. So March 5th. Yeah. So here in, in Texas, it'll be March 5th. Yes. All right. So, <laughs> so Bahrain on March 5th, mm -hmm. 2023, Neil Carter's prediction is Max, Max Verstappen win. Verstappen. Okay. Verst how do you say Verstappen? Verstappen. Yeah. Verstappen. Yeah. Of the Red Bull car. Yeah. All right. All right let's see. Anybody that's listening, we got to see if, <laughs> if Neil was right. Um, so closing thoughts. I know you have a, an Instagram channel. What is your Instagram yeah. handle so people can follow your content about Formula One? Yeah. Um, American Gearbox on all channels on so, channels so youtube yeah. instagram yeah, tiktok you name it okay Absolutely, so american yeah. gearbox mm -hmm. for those of you that like love this portion of the podcast definitely <laughs> check out uh, neil's neil's page any closing thoughts you want to leave the folks with before before we jump um definitely i would say check out Formula One, you'll fall in love with it. That's my, that's my biggest thing. I, I've been absolutely obsessed with it lately. And, um, yeah, that, that, that's, uh, that, thank and you if for anybody needs on. some event planning, uh, yeah. you know, find that Neil on, on LinkedIn, we connected because we yep, just live absolutely. in the same locale and work out at the same gym, but it's been fun to get to know you, man. I feel like we're developing a little bit of friendship. Oh, Obviously 100%. we've got the soccer connection 100%. and now you're about to get a podcast, hopefully <laughs> stood up here soon. So we'll be podcast buddies as well, but thanks for coming on, man. I really appreciate you joining appreciate me on this you, episode. Thank you, man. All right, man. Thank we'll talk you soon. so much. Bye.